Welcome to the War in Ukraine update from Kyiv podcast. I'm Jessica Ganawa, a lecturer in international relations at Flinders University in Australia, and I'm talking today with Paul Lyshenko. Paul is a US Army Lieutenant Colonel and a PhD student in international relations at Cornell University, as well as being the Deputy Director of the Tech Policy Institute at Cornell. Paul also recently co-edited a book together with William Maley and Swinjoy Bose called Drones and Global Order, Implications of Remote Warfare for International Society. Paul focuses in his work on drone warfare, legitimacy and global order. Thanks for joining me on the podcast today, Paul. Jessica, thanks so much for having me. I'm really happy to talk to you and your audience today. I'll just say that, you know, these views are my own. They don't represent those at the Department of Defense, the Department of Army and the federal government for that matter. Mm -hmm. So we're going to focus in the discussion today on drone warfare and consider the implications in light of the war in Ukraine. But first of all, taking a bit of a step back, Can you talk about how drones have been used by the United States government as part of counterterrorism operations since the 9-11 terror attacks in 2001? Yeah, absolutely. And I can really think of no better way to baseline your audience, especially for the generalists out there who are just interested in broader situation awareness on these capabilities, than asking how the most prolific user of drone strikes since the terrorist attacks of 9-11 has used the capability. And this is important, right, because despite the proliferation of drones globally, and this is armed and networked drones to include things such as the TB2 Paracatar, which is manufactured by Turkey, which has become known as the Toyota or AK-47 of drones. We still see that the United States, for better or for worse, is the most prolific user of drone strikes abroad, and primarily in terms of its counterterrorism policy. So how has the United States preferred to use drone strikes and in a global context. Well, I think the body of evidence, which really transcends four successive presidential administrations, including both two Democrats and two Republican presidents, is that U.S. presidents, political officials prefer to use drones strategically with unilateral constraint. When I say unilateral constraint, it really comes down to these internal or self-imposed standards that presidents have adopted to minimize unintended consequences for U.S. strikes abroad, primarily civilian casualties. And so let me just unpack what the strategic use of strikes with unilateral constraint actually means in practice. In my research, I identify sort of shifting uses of drone warfare, that drones could be used as a tactic, much like a patrol or raid in combat, where you have reciprocal risk between combatants, or on the other hand, as a strategy. And so there are some, such as Joe Chapa, who just wrote a book called Is Remote Warfare Moral, that identifies drone strikes in the strategic sense as a foreign policy tool. On the other hand, what we see from U.S. presidential administrations is the proclivity to adopt what we call unilateral constraints in managing these drone strikes abroad. And again, this comes down to the imposition of internal protocols that manage these sort of strikes with the intended effect of reducing unintended consequences and primarily civilian casualties abroad. And in this sense, what we see is an ebb and flow between so-called reasonable and near certainty standards for no civilian casualties. So the reasonable certainty standard, which was adopted initially by Bush and then by Trump, 
really favors an expectation of some degree of civilian casualties in strikes, whereas the near certainty standard that was imposed by President Obama around 2011 and then recently reinstituted by the Biden administration predicates approval of these operations on the near certainty of no civilian casualties, which is to say none. And so the presidential policy guidance in 2011 or now the presidential planning uh, memorandum for President Biden really attempt to reduce collateral damage as a way to enhance the legitimacy of these operations. And in fact, what we've seen in an empirical sense, Jessica, is a lot of implications for a reduction in collateral damage. And so with my supervisor, Professor Sarah Krebs at Cornell University, who, as you know, is one of the world's leading experts on drones, and another colleague who's an economist, we can take a look at the Obama era and the near certainty standard and identify a reduction of 13 civilian casualties per strike after the institution of this policy, which meant that strikes increase in precision to about 95% precision, which means really unerring accuracy, and then over time adverted something like 300 civilian casualties. So the implications of getting the near certainty standard, the unilateral constraint right, are quite severe in terms of reduction of collateral damage, which I believe feeds into sort of legitimacy outcomes of these operations generally. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. And could you actually talk more about that interesting and quite complex question of the legitimacy of using drones and how that intersects with the fact that the user is not actually putting their own soldiers in harm's way and also that possible risk of civilian casualties? Yeah, it is a great question. It is a large question. So I'll do my best to scope this accordingly for your audience. And probably the easiest way to do that, Jessica, is first step back and contextualize legitimacy is important concept in its own right for drone warfare studies. And so if you take a look at the successive generations, which I demarcate in terms of two generations of public opinion research on drone warfare, the first from about 9-11 to, I don't know, probably about 2011, 2015, after the Obama administration, when drones really sort of proliferate broadly, what you see is an interest in public attitudes in terms of approval and support. And while some scholars recognize that legitimacy, which is defined as a subjective beliefs that people hold in the appropriateness of some action, while they believe this is integral to the sustainability of any military action to include drone strikes abroad, there's really a hesitancy to investigate legitimacy as a concept uh, and as a dependent variable for a lot of sound methodological reasons that you would appreciate. And so as we link this to drone warfare, really the question becomes how do we define legitimacy for these operations given sort of the intuition that drones are somewhat different from even other capabilities like artillery, jets, and bombers that afford broad operational reach to militaries. I mean, one of the fundamental appeals to political officials and military leaders for these capabilities is that you can reduce the risk to soldiers on the ground while surgically removing targets and preventing civilian casualties. At least that's the intent. And so they help officials overcome what would be otherwise reputational cost for civilian casualties, but also soldiers returning home in body bags. And by doing so, political officials can circumvent sort of congressional accountability and public oversight for these operations. So legitimacy, what does that mean 
in this space. I've mentioned before the sort of evolving or shifting uses and constraints of drones. And for me, it seems that we can tap into the legitimacy of these operations by way of public perceptions, by understanding drone warfare as a feature of these key attributes, use and constraint. For the most part, scholars in this field will conflate legitimacy with one of three moral norms. The first is the protection of soldiers on the battlefield. The second is the protection of civilians on the battlefield. And the third is sort of a testament to the martial virtue of conflict, which is honor, sacrifice, and courage, that we ought to see soldiers demonstrating courage on the battlefield to shape perceptions of legitimacy. My contention in my research is that it's a little bit more complicated than that, and that oftentimes people combine without knowing in fact, that they are these sort of moral norms that underline their perceptions of legitimacy. And we can actually tap into these sort of moral norm constellations by taking a look at use and constraint. So when you combine ultimately use and constraint to minimize civilian casualties, we get a better understanding of how people understand the legitimacy of operations. Now, let me give you one example about why this has empirical purchase in the real world. In several recent studies I've conducted cross-nationally in the United States and with France, France because it's one of the only great powers besides the United States that conducts drone strikes beyond its immediate borders and regions, in this case in Western African state of Mali. In conducting these cross-national surveys, I find that US and French people really do prefer unique models of drone strikes that have serious implications for the legitimacy outcomes. And so Americans have a tendency to prefer the sort of strategic use of strikes with unilateral constraints unless or until civilian casualties happen. And then they want to kind of in an ex post facto way talk about international approval as a key norm that governs legitimacy of these operations. Whereas French people typically prefer as a matter of course, the use of strikes as a patrol raid, like a tactic with multilateral oversight. So support from the UN and multiple resolutions that govern their intervention in Western Africa, but also support from different regional bodies such as the African Union or the Shahal Five. And that this preference for tactical and multilateral strikes and the legitimacy thereof is really invariant of the civilian casualties that may happen. In other words, regardless of collateral damage, this is the sort of pattern that French people like to see their leaders prosecuting. And so in sum, I think when we step back and we take a look at the evolving use and constraint of drones to mitigate civilian casualties, we get a better handle on the way that the capability is evolving these different patterns globally, besides just reducing legitimacy to one platform, uh, a use of a strike for counterterrorism or the like. Mm -hmm. Since Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine in February this year, there has been the use of drones by both sides. We've seen Ukraine being pretty effective with the use of drones in military combat. There's the famous Bayraktar drones that were used. And then we've had recently Russia using these allegedly Iranian-produced drones in order to mostly hit at civilian infrastructure within Ukraine. So moving from our discussion of counterterrorism operations to drones actually being used in a hot military conflict, what is the place or the usefulness of drones in that context? And what are their limitations in terms of what the use of drones can achieve? 
Yeah, this is a great question. The million dollar question is for 20 plus years, we've seen drones used primarily in the counterterrorism context. But what we do know is that drones are germane or relevant across the spectrum of conflict or different strategic contexts that can range from humanitarian interventions such as Barack Obama's use of drones to redress human rights violations in Libya in 2011, all the way up to just simply intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance to now what we're seeing unfold in Ukraine, which is not dissimilar to what we saw in Azerbaijan against this conflict with our media, or even what's happening in a plethora of other countries around the world, such as uh, Ethiopia. And so what I may do briefly is just to talk about the layers at play here from sort of the global to the sort of conceptual use of drones to what it, what it means for uh, Ukraine and, and do this very quickly for your audience. For the longest time, we've thought that drones really undermine global order, which is a pattern of relations between countries that allow us to achieve mutual goals of security, prosperity, and peace. But the reality is much more complicated. In the book, we identify not just contradictory sort of implications of drones on sovereignty, for instance, but also complementary effects to include supporting countries' territorial integrity, and sovereignty, which is the key norm for international relations. And so what we're seeing in Ukraine right now is in fact that playing out. When you step back and take a look at sort of the competing models of drone warfare between Ukraine and Russia, what brings these together is the fact that these drones are not necessarily, in the case of Ukraine at least, transgressing other countries' sovereignty or territorial borders, but are actually being used within the context of a declared war and theater of operations, which means that the legality of these operations, which can also enhance their legitimacy, are not dubious. So how are these drones being used in the conflict? And there's a lot in the social media space right now, um, some of it good, some of it bad, about how these operations are being conducted and the implications for the nature of the character of warfare. Let me just talk in terms of sort of the tactical, operational, strategic implications of these capabilities as far as I see it in the conflict. And so tactically, these capabilities have provided a marked advantage to Ukraine relative to what is a broader force, a more resource force, a potentially better trained force, at least before the conflict took place uh, in Russia. So what that looks like is the use of not just TB2 Barakatar drones to pick off different elements from Russia, maneuver forces, logistical supply trains, but the use of drones against a whole host of other warfighting functions, so their intelligence capability, their electronic warfare capability, and so forth, it really has disrupted the formation, the tempo, uh, and their operational pace, uh, which is important as you talk about tactics being sort of integral to a campaign plan. Operationally, it does stand to reason given the sort of news reports, and I've not traveled to Ukraine truth and lending. And so like the rest of us, I'm kind of drawing upon a lot of great investigative journalism to form these opinions and assessments. But drones have extended the operational reach significantly of Ukrainian forces, not just in places of the south or, or east, but also in the Black Sea. And then furthermore, they've allowed for some strategic implications, especially in terms of propaganda value and a psychological dividend. And so as you take a look at modern warfare, you really can't conflate war to any one technology, however exquisite it may be, drones or cyber. Modern warfare is really about integrating combined arms across different domains, synchronizing all of that to impose multiple dilemmas on an adversary. And when you do that, you force them to make key trade-offs and resource allocations to meet a threat that creates a lot of vulnerabilities. And one of these vulnerabilities as it relates to drones was the use of a TV bear Qatar to deceive a key Russian sort of ship 
ship in the Black Sea that therefore resulted in the use of other traditional lethal fires to sink it. And so this is a case where you had a clear sort of propaganda win for drones that didn't have a strategic outcome in terms of victory, but nevertheless, in terms of the media space, shifted the dial towards Ukraine. And then furthermore, we know from decades of experience within Iraq and Afghanistan, the psychological dividend of these operations among those who are targeted you can't discount it. It's pretty significant. And so some of the reports we see from Russian soldiers is that it's very disturbing to be on the receiving end of these capabilities. Now, just two additional things. Right now in Ukraine, there's really an argument on the one hand of a shifting nature of warfare because of these capabilities. And so the nature of warfare is social, it's political, it's intensely human, it's a clash of wills, it's designed to achieve a political objective. And there are some that say, that these drones, whether they're big and small, so the TB2 or commercially available, easily weaponized drones like the Chinese manufacturer DJI or others have a, a real implication on the nature of war. I have a tendency to, uh, to disagree with that sort of uh, postulation because I think what we're seeing here is a real impact on the way that conflict unfolds or how war is conducted, which is its character. And we've seen over time that the emergence of, let's say, gunpowder, the bow and arrow, long range artillery, uh, say potentially like nuclear weapons, have simply just moderated how conflict is conducted. And I think that's what we're seeing in Ukraine. The second point is, what are the implications, having talked through or mapped out all the tactical, operational, strategic effects of these capability on high-intensity conflict? And I think it's probably too early to tell. But what I do know for those uh, who talk about drones in sort of a high-intensity conflict like we're seeing is a tendency to kind of focus simply on the tactical implications and not understand that there are strategic implications as well. And then finally, there is a social psychological or behavioralist component, which is to say perceptions of leaders, which is really important to understand when you start talking about threat assessments and the degree to which capability does constitute something of a game-changing development. And so we have to understand that strategy and policy, whereas it may be informed by practitioner scholars and policymakers, is really a feature of what leaders think and how they think. And so if a leader thinks that capability is game-changing, they're going to continue to kind of tout that narrative. And it's up to scholars like you, me, and others to try to navigate the empirical evidence to see the degree to which these drones in this case have actually changed strategic war outcomes or made it easier for companies to wage conflict, uh, however defined. Mm -hmm. And I'm interested to know how you've been evaluating Russia's recent use of these supposedly Iranian manufactured drones that have actually been causing significant damage in particular to Ukrainian energy grids and drawing on that kind of socio-psychological effect that you mentioned that, you know, with civilian casualties, you're essentially starting to psychologically terrorize a population. How have you been evaluating this particular way in which Russia has been using these drones? Does that type of use of drones by a state actor within a hot military conflict change the way in which we need to think about the use of drones in war? So a really easy question on that one. <laughs> Two questions, rather. Yeah, so I'll take a stab at this. I mean, so the way I understand this conceptually is a sort of tactical use of these operations, these strikes with unilateral constraint. Now, having said that, what, what does that really mean? And so I see three predominant lines of effort 
for Russia's use of these drones. By the way, Russia is kind of in a hard way at this point because whereas there's other drone peddlers globally, of course, so Israel, for instance, they really are are restricted to go trade with uh, Iran at this point, which, by the way, has a a deep history, a long history of drone production and pilfering uh, intellectual property, primarily from the United States and the Western sort of allies and partners to create their capability. Israel will not want to deal with Russia because of some really unique partnerships that are unprecedented historically with the Fifth Fleet in the Persian Gulf. And so Israel, in case you didn't know, is embedded with the highest levels of the Fifth Fleet, meaning that trading drones to Russia, which it otherwise may be comfortable doing, really constitutes a horizontal sort of escalation in a way that they don't want to preserve freedom of maneuver in the Persian Gulf. Now, what are the lines of effort that I see? So first and foremost is a use of these kamikaze drones, so-called loitering munition, one-way uh, sort of flight patterns destructing on impact drones like the Shahid-136. And these are sort of smaller slower, but highly lethal capability. At one point from uh, the 11th to I think the 12th or 13th of October had struck Kiev and resulted in something like 30 civilian casualties, as well as a destruction to infrastructure such as electric grid, as well as sewer and water. So they're highly effective. The other thing I think we're seeing unfolding here is use of smaller drones, like these sort of commercial DJI drones, other variants to swarm. The swarming capability is used, again, to overcome an enemy's sort of integrated air defense system, uh, which, by the way, is optimized for Cold War artillery. In this case, it's highly ineffective to deceive, to achieve tactical surprise, to divert resources, and then impose these vulnerabilities I've talked about. And then finally, what I think we're seeing increasingly so is the use of these drones, kamikaze, loitering, or commercially available swarming with standard ballistic missiles. And so as you take a look at the sort of tactics and strategy, probably, so linking ways, means, and ends to the ultimate objective of just simply destroying Ukraine as a viable state among the member states of international society, what we're seeing is the integration of ballistic missiles and air, sea, and land with these drones. And so the sort of sea missiles, the 3M14, the ground-based missile, the R-500, or the air-based missile of the KH-101 are sort of strategic ballistic missiles that are wreaking a lot of havoc on Ukraine as well. And not just simply in the contested south and east, but deeper within the sort of middle terrain metropolitan areas. And I think the intent here for Russia is a so-called Russian way of war, which is to impose punishment on civilians, especially as a way to break the will of the Ukrainian leadership. And of course, this gets back to the nature of warfare. And so having sketched out the sort of modalities of use of these kamikaze swarm and ballistic missiles and all in concert at different time and spaces, what is the implications of this for Russia's war effort? Well, we know for the empirical research, research by Dan Reeder, Jason Lyle, and other empiricists, is that while you may have some near-term implications for targeting civilians in terms of will to continue to resist, over the long term, your results are really ineffective because what you often do is increase, inspire sort of morale, even in the face of sort of harsh punishment. And furthermore, the sort of implications for a country that's on the receiving end of this sort of strategy, it's pretty clear that 
your own constituency, your own civilians would not want you to adopt similar tactics, lest your sort of operations are delegitimized domestically, but also globally, which is a huge implication for Ukraine, because it continues to sort of scour for money, but also for some important capability to include MQ-9 Reapers, armed and network drones from the US. And so in sum, I'm not sure that over time, if we're going to see this sort of implication that Putin would want to see for targeting civilians, I think what we're seeing right here is blowback in terms of increased morale and donations that are going to be useful to stymie his sort of intent going forward. Mm -hmm. And do you think that there will be a change as a result of this war to the research agenda around the use of drones in warfare? I mean, obviously, we would all prefer that this war wasn't taking place given the massive human costs. But nevertheless, does this change the research agenda in the drone space? I think that we're in a really interesting place in this conflict to take the drone warfare scholarship to a whole different level, right? So for the most part, people have talked about drone warfare being a drumorama, <laughs> which is to say there's just too much too much stuff going on and it's oversubscribed. Why would you as a young scholar, even a practitioner like me, who's got 20 years doing this stuff, want to get invested? But I think what we're seeing is at least three different sort of research avenues that we can go from here, given the sort of Ukraine uh, conflict and these drones. The first is the sort of implications of more or less civilian casualties on the legitimacy of these operations or even public support and approval, which is how we mostly understand attitudes uh, in public opinion. The other is the attitudes of those who are in the receiving end of strikes. And so we often will take a look at US respondents, especially to proxy for global public opinion, but yet we know that drones have proliferated broadly. So much like Armenia and Azerbaijan, we're in a position where we can actually talk to Ukrainians and see what is most legitimate or not to include their own country strikes, not just Russia's, which is fascinating because it's a hot conflict, as you said. And then finally is the global order implications. And I think that the book that you've referenced that I helped co-edit stakes a claim for this so-called fourth wave of research, but we can move beyond this simply intuiting or imagining this is a case and really use survey experiments to understand the degree that to which people think or know that drones stress hierarchy, international humanitarian law, and sovereignty uh, to the degree that we posit in the book. And so those three areas mean that this research agenda is pretty rich going forward. Mm -hmm. I've no doubt there are many things in this war that are going to be examined for many years to come. And I'll, of course, also pop a link in the show notes to your book and also a couple of articles that you've written on these issues. Thanks, Paul. This has been a fascinating conversation and I appreciate you diving into these quite complex and somewhat challenging issues and really clarifying. Appreciate you being with me on the podcast today. Thanks, Jessica. I really appreciate your time. Thanks for listening and thanks to Gonka Varol for our theme music.